Welcome back to How They Train. Prior to starting this podcast, I wrote down a list of my dream guests, and today's guest, Dan Larang, was on that list. So you can only imagine how excited I am for this chat. In fact, it might be the most excited I am to talk to anyone on that list. Dan is the man who coaches Ironman world champions Jan Fredino and Arne Haug, including in the year that they both won Kona on the same day, a first for any triathlon coach as far as I'm aware. Ironman 70.3 champ and Ironman world champs runner-up on three occasions, Lucy Charles Barclay, and he's the head coach for Grand Tour winning cycling team, Bora Hansgrower. Dan very well may go down as the greatest coach in triathlon history, so the next hour or two of picking his brain is going to be just a real treat for me. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's it's an honor to have you on here. Yeah, thank you very much, Jake, to have me. And uh, yeah, also a big thanks to these uh, nice words. Always uh, <laughs> strange to hear it when somebody talks like this about yourself, but um, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to our chat and hopefully we can bring something to your listeners, something new, something that they are uh, interested in. I think it would be um, negligent of me, Dan, if I didn't just go straight into the to the chat about Jan Fredino. Like, I was always a little resistant to the idea that Jan was the greatest triathlete of all time because I was such an Alistair Brownlee fan. I just thought <laughs> what, what Alistair Brownlee did in his short course days and how dominant he was for like a three, four year period. I, I didn't think anyone was ever going to be better. And and Jan just wore me down to the point where I don't think anyone can deny that he is the greatest triathlete of all time. Um, so, so let's just jump in and, and start talking about your relationship with him and, 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 and how you have coached him over the years. So wh- how did the, the relationship with you two guys come about? Yeah, so our relation started in uh, 2012. At the end of 2012, there he, he was already Olympic champion, so he had already a um, successful career. Uh, the first part of it, and I got under twenty three national coach in Germany on in Saarbrücken, on the in the Olympic base uh, from the German Federation. And Jan was training at these times at that place. It was it was his hometown, and um, yeah, we met there at, at the swim. So he came for his swim training, and he um, when he talked to me, I heard that he was sick. And basically, I just told to him, Jan, I think it's not a good idea to jump today in the pool. I think it's better you go home and then you come back when you're healthy again. And then we can talk about the training. And we didn't meet. This was our first meeting. So uh, it was, uh, I think he was a little bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, what is this guy telling me? Because normally Jan was was known to, yeah, that you cannot tell him something like that. He's doing what he wants. He goes, if he wants to train, he, he will train. And also, he was Olympic champion. He was the the hero of um, yeah of, the, of that um, of Olympic center, I would say. But uh, um, I was surprised. He just said, "Okay, good, that makes sense." And he turned um, and he went home. And um, I think one or two days later, he came to my office. And yeah, basically, then he asked me if if I would uh, like to coach him. And um, the second um, oh. The, he had some some how do you say uh he had some ideas about it one was okay can you coach me now on the short distance but the second was i want to win uh, kona and do you think we can do that and um then i said to him in in 30 seconds okay we will do 2015 and then that was the deal so that's how we start our relationship so uh, it was uh, really, uh, really nice, uh, really uh, interesting for me when he left the office. Uh, I always like to tell uh, or to 
And to speak about that, when he left the office, I was really nervous because it was I just didn't really know what I told him there. And I know, okay, now the pressure is on, but on the other side, I was really excited also to to start that project and to start with an athlete like him. And um, I also felt from the first day on that there could be a good uh, coach or athlete coach relationship, what is really important, I guess, for for working um, successfully together. So where my head goes to straight away there and what I really want to dive deep on is is the process from Jan Fredino walking into your office as an Olympic champion but but hasn't really tested himself over the longer distance to being the greatest long course triathlete of all time. What did you guys start doing in your early days working together just in terms of your training? Like how did that relationship go from that that meeting in that office where Jan asks you to to be his coach to actually getting into the training? Um yeah so we know that um Oh, we were not sure if his body was really made for long distance triathlon. So some, there's something that you never know before you try it. And we were both, um, um, we both know that it will be a big challenge. So we said, okay, let's go one year on the, on the short distance. Uh, was also then the year where the Olympic, uh, where their national team got world champion in, in the team relay, where he was also part of it. And we could see us there every day. So what was really, uh, really nice. So, um, it was not coaching over distance like the years that followed, but it was really training day by day together. We uh, get better known to each other. I get better known to his body. And it was interesting because he was completely out of shape when we started and we make a performance test. And I was just like, wow, how this guy could ever won, uh, win um, uh, the Olympic Games? And even how should this guy win a race uh, in the next months or years? So that was a little bit like... Um, and a surprise for me, I, I thought, okay, now you get physiology data that are far behind, every, or far, uh, far in front of everything what you have ever seen, but it was not the case. And then, yeah, we talked honestly about that and we said, okay, what can be the, the process? And uh, so first of all, we tried to build up the, um, the volume to make his body again, resistance again, or resilient against the load. And um, we went really step by step, what was, I think, also a hard process for him, because if you know Jan, he always wants to win. He wants to to go yeah, go all in for, for his goals. And he trained a lot in the past and trained really hard in the past. So now starting with, I, let me call it first easy training and basic training, um, was not so easy for him to understand. And also because I was a young coach, so for sure, on one side, he trusts me because otherwise he would not have chosen me. But on the other side, he also know, okay, this guy has not so much experience. Are we really doing the right thing? So that's why, that's why it was really a day-by-day process. And um, But the first thing was really building up resilience, working on the athletic side, um, building up volume step-by-step and um, before going uh, to intensity. And uh, the, the project was, like I said, winning Kona 2015. So we said one year Olympic distance, then it, one year with 70.3 races, uh, with an, um, 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 yeah, to, to get the longer distance in the legs. And then 2014 was the first long distance year where he got, um, I think, third in Kona. And then the year after he won. So it was really a build up. We always, we were quite uh, convinced that we will, could make it in three years. Um, and that's what we did, basically. Just out of curiosity, Dan, what was the the test that you did with Jan that made you think, oh, this guy's numbers are, are pretty average here? 
Uh, really nothing special. So one one thing was uh, um, the VO2 max test on the on the treadmill. And the other thing uh, was what they used to do on the, in the Olympic Center was some kind of step test on the bike where you look for thresholds. So really nothing uh, fancy or whatever, just, yeah. But these were the tests where you had the experience, where you got numbers, where you can compare. And like I said, the view to Max was, uh, yeah, was from, from an athlete, but it was not from a uh, high-performance, uh, successful uh, athlete. And the same with the threshold. So um, I think the threshold was below 300 watts or something like this. And when you know that he is um, 70, um, yeah, 74 kilos, 75 kilos, um, it's not so much even for a triathlete. So, uh, um, yeah, we had to do a, a lot of work. Uh, but uh, what was really interesting to see, and it was also for me as a coach interesting, he was quite fast able to train consistently. So it's not that we have the big peaks like, 35 hours or something like this but we try always to keep the training consistent because for him a recovery week was always like oh i he didn't really like this so it was that was just his feeling he would do it and he was also used to it in the past training like three three weeks load one week recovery or two weeks load one week recovery but it was also the first time for me as a coach that we worked with six seven weeks load um, but like I said, with a constant load, not with this uh, really high amount or really peaks. And that worked really well with him. So I can remember quite well that in six to eight weeks, we brought him to a quite good level. And there I saw then the talent. So responding to training in that way, that is then also an, a big talent. So you can have two athletes with the same numbers at the start, but then they um, you expose them to training. And then you get a different response. And that's what happened also with Jan there. And you sort of hear about like these mythical numbers when it comes to testing. Like some some athletes have these these massive numbers that you just hear, you hear about it. And you don't really know what it means. And and then like you might hear that Jan's numbers weren't that special to start. And, and again, it's like, well, what does that actually mean? I, I guess a good example is everyone sort of at the moment talks about how Christian Blumenfeld has a 92 VO2 max and and then, and then I guess comparing to that, that to the the tests you were doing with Jan in his in his early days, can you give me an idea of like the actual numbers? And and then with that, can you explain to me as a as a high performance endurance coach how those numbers actually translate to endurance performance? Yeah, it's um, exactly like I said at the moment, or in the last years, especially with the with the good work what the Norwegians are doing, and also with bring it to public with i don't know uh, um, podcast uh, youtube video whatever it's in yeah in the mouth of everybody uh you can read a lot about it and um, i also know really well um their, their coach with uh alexander bo who's quite a friend of me so um i'm i really admire what they are doing there but and now comes the but uh, like you said numbers is one thing and the end performance is the other thing so like like with Jan, we we had the example. Uh, we started there. I can say this, I guess, uh, with this VO two max of I think seventy or seventy one or seventy two, something like this. I have to go back to my notes. For sure, we were able to increase it, but for sure not to ninety one. <laughs> That's just not possible. So, but uh, 
we started in that area when uh, when we worked together. And um, but one thing is how so how how big the engine is. Just this that's that's one thing. Then you you have to see okay how efficient is the engine. So how much percent of this engine you can really use during the endurance performance because it's not that you go for max effort triathlon, especially not a long distance triathlon, but you go you have to use your engine as efficient as possible. Then the next one is how much energy you are able to um, to use in the um, um, in the competition. So it could be a limiting factor that you are just not able to to um, absorb enough energy to do the effort because the effort is basically always on the threshold uh, at a long distance. Um, but you are if you are not able to to uh, absorb all the energy and that can be the case, then you also have a problem. So this could be a limiting factor. Then also the mental side. So one thing is to have these high numbers, but the other thing is also to to bring it really in the race and to be able to to deliver at that day 100% what, what you have in your body. And VO2max is one number. We have other numbers. Um, um, we're always talking about metabolic profiling. So looking what is the aerobic system, how is the anaerobic system working, what is about the, the threshold, uh, how good is the fat metabolism working. So these are... All, um, um, oh, I would say you need some kind of metrics where you have these numbers and then you can better see how the training works with your athlete. So you have an idea about the training. For example, you want to go higher in efficiency. Uh, then it is also nice to see if the training method, what you are using is also working in the right direction. Otherwise, it's um, it's a little bit of guessing. For sure, you also can see it in training. You Normally, every coach has his special training sessions where he compares perhaps two sessions that he did four weeks before, four weeks after, or six weeks after. So also there you see, but if you have the possibility to measure it, um, then it just make, gives you some kinds of... Well, you make sure that you go in the right direction and that you are perhaps not losing time uh, because you are going in the wrong direction or, or that you also can really take out everything from your athletes. But I also have to say this is not this requires really a lot of um, a lot of effort from the from the mm, effort means to be there to have the stuff around you to have the tools to measure etc cetera, etc cetera, to analyze this. So um, if you are doing this, um, it can work. Um, but I would say it's still possible also to bring high performance. Um, um, uh, or to, to to bring good results if we just reduce it to what is really, really important. I think that's that's basically what I would say. So if you have the tools, if you have the possibility and you are if you are able to really use it in a good way, like the Norwegians are doing it, it's good. But if you are just measuring to measure and to have numbers and if you don't really know what to do with it, I think then it's better to focusing on the basic stuff and um, yeah, to work on that. And then post that initial test with Yarm where you see that he has pretty pretty average numbers as, as far as a professional triathlete goes, um, you, you mentioned that you, you just started building the volume and, and started doing like an easy base phase of training um, and, and getting sort of building robustness in his, in his body uh, through that phase and, and getting him back to consistent volume. So once you did that, Jan went on to have like one of the, the better stints that we've ever seen in triathlon. Like his 2014 where he, he came runner-up in the 70.3 World Champs to 
Javier Gomez, which was one of the greatest races I've ever seen. And and he, he came third at Kona that day where everything went wrong for him to go on and, and, and then win both of those races, the 70.3 World Championships and the Ironman World Championships in the next year. What what were you doing with Jan over that sort of 12 to 24 month block post post when he sort of um, came in and did that testing where did the training go after that sort of easy base phase where you're just building up volume and getting back into things then what kind of things did you start doing with Jan that that made him become the world champion and 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 legend in the sport that he is um i i would say then we uh yeah we was well, I always like to um, to reduce training to or to make it quite simple how we build it up, and and that's also how we did it with Jan. For sure, you always have to adapt intensity, volume, etc. But basically, what we are doing is at the beginning we are working on the on the VO2 max, working on the engine, and we are using this time also to to build up the skills to run, to bike, and to swim fast. So to make short intervals. Um, for example, in the run, uh, a classic thing, 200 meter intervals, uh, focusing on the technique and and building up these sessions from really short sessions to um, yeah, uh, t- 10k sessions or 8k sessions where you, you run really 200 meters with 200 meters uh, um, recovery, not to push too much, but really always focusing on the technique and the same on the bike, the same on the swim. So uh, the idea behind this is once to to increase the VO2 max because the intensity is is quite high over the series, um, but also to to learn your body um, to to go fast in a technical, uh, yeah, nearly perfect way. So if you not can run 200 meter in a good technique fast, how do you want to run uh, 1k or 10k fast? So that's a little bit the idea behind it. Also, to, 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 to your tendons, your bones, everything get really used to it, and it's also like um, yeah, keeping a little bit the, the how should you say in English, the playing factor. So it's not all about just looking at the watch and you have really to do this time and this time, but it's really about uh, feeling. So doing good strides um, or on the bike, when we see we do VO to max effort, for sure the athletes get number, but on a good day, they go higher. On a lower day, uh, they just go to the uh, uh, to the lower limit, but it's it felt more like some kind of fart leg then some kind of, if you go for 10 minute intervals or on the run for 1K or 2K or 3K intervals, where it's really, um, what feels really different. And and from there, what, um, so we are, we are always starting with some kind of polarized training. Let me call it like this, high intensity on one side, uh, volume on the other side. And then we go more to a um, strength endurance phase uh, where we really work with longer intervals, where we really, it's the muscles um, where really yeah, the muscles used to higher torques um, and also to to be able to keep this for a longer time. So really building strength endurance. And then in the end, what we are doing is then to, to train race specifically. So to go, go to race intensity, depending now on Olympic 70.3 or um, uh, long distance triathlon. Um, so to make this kind of econom- economization um to be ready for the competition and then on this way so we repeat these circles perhaps until the first competition two or three times uh perhaps between competition one time and then for sure are coming the individual adaptation so if an athlete has some specific weakness or weak point for example i don't know if the vo2 max is um you have athletes where the vo2 max goes down quite quite quickly so perhaps there you have to 
put, to give more stimulus there. Perhaps you have athletes where you are using uh, high altitude training. Also in high altitude, you cannot train the same way or exactly the same way like in normal condition. Then you also have to adapt. But basically, that's also what we did with Jan. So, and with Jan, it was like this because with Jan, we didn't do any kind of altitude training during the whole career. Uh, just now in the end, or not in the end, but in the last uh, the last uh, year, I would say. And um, yeah, so that's a basically the build up with with him and um, what worked pretty well. And then you always have to adapt it to the metabolic response, but also to to the um, orthopedic response. So what are the bones, the muscles, etc., are doing? How long do they need for recovery after a competition? Giving enough rest after this, so that's this has done. This is this is defined tuning after. And so, in those sort of little blocks that you're talking about, does the volume per week change much, or is it more just the kind of sessions you're doing that change? And um, with that, how much volume per week are you doing with yarn? Um, I would say the volume. Um, it's always in a range, um, so it's not that it's uh, changed too much. So it's more, like you say, that uh, the sessions are changing. Um, so we with Jan, we talk about 25 hours to 30 hours of training, something like this. Then you have perhaps a week, uh, some peaks in it. But in general, this was the training load, what we did in the past. And then like... Something I'm really fascinated on. So obviously Jan has just got it right at Kona quite a few times, like particularly his 2019 race where I don't know if we've we've ever seen a race in triathlon better than that. Maybe Alistair Brownlee's 2012 London Olympic race. But apart from that, like I think they're the two best performances we've ever seen in triathlon history. So I'm not sure if you remember it, it like vividly or not, but do you remember the the final sort of specific block you did with Jan leading into that performance where he won in 2019? Yeah, it's, um, you're completely right. So we Jan won uh, Kona three times, but really the best performance uh, and the first on yeah, it was the first time where we really said, okay, now that's how it should feel and be. So from the first minute on until the finish line, um, he also did some other good races, but there was normally always something like hmm, perhaps a little bit here, perhaps a little bit there. Uh, the feeling was perhaps not not hundred percent, but that was a ways where everything really fitted together. And I think um, it's not that we that the training was completely different. I think what was different was that he was earlier already in, in Kona. So earlier I had his acclimatization to the real conditions. And um, in my opinion, this makes made the biggest difference. For sure, you always make some, some every year you are making adaptations to the training, you to make the fine tuning, but it's not that we completely change the system uh, and uh, and completely change the approach to Kona. Uh, the only thing what we change is the environment. And like and a lot of professions are also doing it now in the, in the last years. I think this is quite key to come to Kona and to be really adapted to these special conditions. So how how much before the race did you come out that year? Uh, four weeks. Okay. And inside those four weeks when you were there, were you reducing the training load so that you didn't overdo it in the in the Kona conditions, which are obviously hotter and humid than, than most other places in the world? Or did you still do some good, solid training while you were there? Yeah, you have to, um, for sure, you have to adapt in the first week to uh, jet lag, so traveling, 
to the external conditions, like you said, the the, the, the climatic um, conditions. But after one week, um, I think we we went also back to a yeah a, a quite tough program for sure, not hundred percent the same what we you would do under normal conditions because even if you are acclimatized, you you are not able to go at hundred percent back to what you are doing before. So it's that that's really hard to achieve this. Um, but we we have quite a tough tough training until uh, close on to, uh, close to the Ironman. So it was really just this first week adaptation, travel, getting used to the conditions where we took it really easy. And uh, then having um, yeah, two weeks of good training. And then for sure, uh, last week was tapering or the last 10 days we taper to the competition. And, and like I said in the introduction, Dan, you're obviously the head coach or head of performance for Bora Hansgrohe, who are a Grand Tour winning cycling team. And, and I'm really excited to get into to, to pick your brain about that. But specifically where it, where, where it sort of applies to Jan Frodeno is, I think the thing that, that, that has most surprised me about Jan's long course career is when he started, he was an okay cyclist. He was probably slightly better than the average pro, but Throughout the, the later part of his, his long course career, he really has become one of the best cyclists in triathlon. Like I think really he, he's in that sort of top five guys when it comes to Kona or, or a, a race that he's going there to win. No one really outbikes Jan Fredino anymore. And um, 2019 was a perfect example of that where, where he, he sort of broke the race on the, the last 40K of the bike and and that's where that's where he got his 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 big gap, and he he obviously went away to to run minutes into everyone else. But what specifically did you do with Jan to to make him such a good long course time trialist? Mm, I think um, so. Training wise, I think is also a consequence of uh, of years of of really uh, always putting again a focus on this. So for sure, we train Jan as a complete triathlete. So it's not that we said we we focus completely on the bike and all the rest it doesn't matter no we we always train like like triathletes but we we knew from the past that the bike uh, is a, if we can uh, call it like is a weaker part from Jan and it's also the part where he has the most respect of so because he knows there are some this over by uh, over bikers in the field and um, that he really, really has to invest a lot so for sure we work over years on that we he did a lot of also roller trainings and a good combination between rollers and outside so i would not say it's we make some specific sessions then he got better no it's really um we have to we have to say endurance training is um something but also so adaptation takes time endurance adaptation takes time and if you do it for a longer time over years and if your body responds well for sure you will also get the result at, at some point and then it was always the combination with um, looking for the right position. So what is the best position aerodynamically, uh, biomechanically? There we have um, with the sponsors, good partners. We have one guy uh, with the seat position um, um, from Germany where we where try things. So it's always trying to optimize year by year small things. Um, then the gym work, for example, uh, try to optimize this, adapt this to, to his... Um, yeah, to the training. So I think this was a little bit, it was not one thing. It was always trying to optimize the bike performance. In training, we um, we kept a little bit the same. We had one year where we made a step backwards. That was where we trained really a lot of race-specific training and what was not good for Jan. I would not say it's not, it's, it's, a, 
uh, it's bad for everybody, but for Jan in that situation at that point, it was not the best. And there we we saw okay, there nothing really went forward. Um, but for the rest, we always see some improvement, but slowly improvement. So it doesn't came from one year to another. Um, in the end, what you see, 2019, the build up for this started the years before. So and Jan really has to, um, to do a lot for this. So it's. It's hard work <laughs> to get every what out there. <laughs> so um, basically, I, I think it's it's not a big miracle. It's it's pure hard work. <laughs> and then with with Jan for my sort of last Jan Fredino question until a little bit later, um, what kind of what kind of long rides and long runs is Jan Fredino doing? So say like maybe in in a lead into Kona or or in a lead into a seventy point three World Championships, is is he a guy who does sort of um, uh, a heap of volume in his long riding and his long running or or is he more just a gets volume in like throughout the whole week and, and his long rides and runs aren't actually that that big um yeah in the run it's generally we we don't do runs who are longer than two hours perhaps a little bit longer but these are the exceptions so we are really careful with with long runs just to avoid um injuries and if we are in a training block and if you are if you are doing a run of two hours or longer, even if you run easy, um, there's a lot of impact on your body. And normally the day after or perhaps two days after you want to trade again and you want to do perhaps doing an interval session or whatever. So that's why we um, we are not doing so much of it. Uh, we're doing them leading up to, to the big races. But like I said, the longest run is perhaps two, two hours, two hour ten, something like that. And um, on the bike, we are we are sometimes doing this fundamental sides, doing some kind of overlegs, um, just saying right for the souls. That's how we call it, a right for the souls. Just go, enjoy, enjoy. Look for some good climbs, and uh, then you have perhaps rides of six hours, something like that, um, or perhaps one day even longer. But it's more like um, for sure you get an adaptation for this. For sure, something happening in the body. But it's also for the for the mental aspect, just being out there the whole day on the bike and um, enjoying it. And on the other side, knowing that you are doing a good thing for your endurance at that moment. And then the next sort of person I really want to pick your brains about is is Lucy Charles. And there's there's multiple reasons. Like obviously you've got a an Ironman World Champion, your stable in Anhaug, who you've worked with um, for over ten years now. I'm pretty sure. And and I want to come to her, but. I'm fascinated by the Lucy one for for a couple of reasons. I guess first and foremost, Lucy might be the most popular person in triathlon, so it's hard not to talk about about Lucy Charles. Um, but then I guess the the next thing that I'm specifically interested to hear you talk about is how you take someone like Lucy Charles, who before she's worked with you has has already established herself as probably the best, if not the second best, behind Daniela Reef, long course female triathlete in the world. And then within a very short period of time with you goes on to have very arguably the greatest long course triathlon performance in history in her 70.3 world champs win in, in um, St. George. So I really want to know like how the thing with like how the relationship with you and Lucy came about. And then what, what, what goes through your brain when you're like, Oh, she's already so good. Like what, how can I make her better? And, and then, and then delve into how you very, very clearly did make her, better in a very short space of time yeah so um perhaps we start with the point how we yeah how we start our um our work and uh, it was not planned to work together to be honest uh 
And normally the best thing happens when they are not planned. Uh, so what what I so I saw in a post from Lucy or from Reese, I'm not 100% sure that there was the intention to to try to win the world championships in Kona and then to qualify for the Olympics in 2024. That this would be a project what they would like to do and um, yeah. So and then in my eyes that was like wow. Uh, how do they want to do this? And I saw for sure, I saw how successful you, she was already. I, I saw, I saw um, or I heard she's also, she's a great athlete, a great person. And I was interested in that project just to know how do they want to do this? Is there a plan behind or was it just like, um, yeah, we, we say it to have some kind in the media or whatever. And that's why I contacted Reese, uh, her coach and husband. And um yeah, that he came back to me and said, hey, let's have a chat. And uh, basically, our first part of the talk was we, we talked about that idea. And then I, I really saw it was serious. So there was some, there were some ideas behind, a plan behind, also uh, a high commitment behind, and big ambitions. And um, then basically, for me, it was already done. Like, okay, I will follow it. And um, it will be interesting to see if it works. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed. And then um, Reese and Lucy, they said to me, which, if I would be interested in to help them on that project. And that was for me like a surprise because I would never thought that this could happen. Because like you said, she was successful with, with her setup, with Reese as her coach and with a really good uh, team around her. And uh, But same with Jan, it didn't took me too long to say yes to this because I said, okay, that's... Yeah, for sure. That's an interesting project. It's an interesting athlete, an interesting uh, team around. So um, I will go for it. The only concern I had was um, what would Annie say about it? So if I would now start to coach one of her main opponents for the future. And that's why I said I will do it. But my um, only if Annie gives her 100% okay. And the next thing what I did was calling Annie and talk to her. And she basically said, hey, you are free to do what you want. I have, I have absolutely no problem because I know that you treat every athlete with the same passion, the same energy, and you want the best for every athlete. So for her, it didn't really matter. Um, she said, basically, if I want to do this, then I should go and she would have no, absolutely no problems with it. And I worked with Annie already for uh, 18 years. So there's a lot of trust, a lot of um, um, yeah, honesty. So I. I could really trust it. For her, it was okay. Then I went back to Lucy and Reese, and uh, that's how we started the project. And um, but from the first minute on, I also tried to to give them a lot of respect for what they achieved already in this setup. So it was I didn't see me like okay, I come now in, change everything, and now everything will be better, even better. I just came in and said, okay, there's a successful setup. A lot of respect for that. Let me see where I can help. Let me see how I can bring in my expertise, uh, in which function, which role should I play? Um, am I the guy who making just analyzing the data? Am I doing the plan or whatever? Just how, what would be the best fit for the team, um, uh, Charles Barkley? And that's why we, um, yeah, we, that's how we start to work. And so when you, when you um, come into that camp and you've gone, okay, we're working together, how did that process of, of figuring out what your role was going to be and what changes you would make actually take, um, take like, how did that actually come about? Like, 
what did you guys specifically do? Did you do some testing? Did you sit down with Lucy and her, her coach Reese and, and look over what she'd done in the past and, and talk about, well, where, what might we sort of try to make some changes? Or did you just get into the, the program with her and then go uh, make some suggestions? Or, or did it end up that you just took over and, and from day one of, of saying, yes, you were fully running the program? Uh, we agreed that it should be as um, an, an easy tra uh, transfer, so it should not be like from one day to another completely something different. But the good thing was um, I took over Lucy when she had some kind of break from triathlon. So she tried to, oh, yeah, she swam a lot to make this, um, um, not to make the qualification, but to have a good time for the qualification for the Olympics in the swim. So she had some uh, month of training in the, in the pool and Basically, when I took her over, it was like, okay, now we start back. We go back to triathlon and uh, prepare for yeah for the upcoming competitions. And um, then for sure, we we talked uh, with with Reese, uh, with Lucy about the past, what they did, what like I said, what worked well, what not. Um, but then you have to be careful because if you then try to mix up two philosophies, then it gets dangerous because then you you uh, you have not hundred percent control about what is going on. So it's always hard to combine then different philosophy or to combine, for example, if you have a lot of coaches in and then everybody gives his, his, uh, his, um, uh, his ideas in, it's really important that there's one guy who, who takes the control and who in the end say, okay, that's how we want to do it or that's how we do it. Because there's always the, the risk that you, um, yeah, that you get some kind of overload in the end or some kind of different effects and we were quite early to that point to say, okay, my main role in that in that constellation is to set up the program. So to say, okay, that's that's how I think we can bring Lucy to the best possible performance. And Reese, uh, in his role, being there on daily base, looking at Lucy, uh, giving feedback, also um, giving his concerns if he thinks things are going in the wrong direction. And um, so that's basically how we how we work quite fast. So at the beginning, it was um like a transition but i think after some three or four weeks we were completely on the program what i uh, suggested but always in a good contact with uh, with lucy and reese and always open for yeah for for changes or for for ideas opinions so everybody can bring in his his ideas and it was also better i think for for them because then they know okay then is setting up the program it's not that we have to think also about is it wrong or right no that's the program and now we're just talking perhaps to shift a little bit left or right, but it's basically the program is set. And uh, that's how we go, how we went then from there on. And so with Lucy, um, given that you did just sort of become the head coach, what were some specific changes that you made? So over analyzing her performances and her past training in, in your chats with her and Reese and um, and then getting started with her, what were some what were some changes that you thought to yourself or actually did implement? Um, with her so I think the, the, for sure you, you will bring in some new sessions but I think the main thing was that it was more some kind of periodization with focus on specific strengths and weaknesses so building like I said so this kind of structure focusing on on VO2 max focusing on strength and endurance focus on that so in the past they did a, for sure good training and uh, also trained uh, trained a lot but the, that was not um um, or I had a different structure. Let me call it like this. I had a different structure to do it. 
um, also how to put the rest days, the recovery days. So there I wrote in a different structure. And in the end, also that's uh, that's what they, uh, what what Lucy and Ruiz said. That's what what also brought her to a new level. For sure, there are new sessions. For sure, we went also a little bit up with the volume, but not too crazy. But we were what we went up was in the consistency. So we have more consistency in the training, and um, that's and and less sometimes less crazy things like a yeah, two-hour run and here again a long run. So there was some kind of things what they did in the past where I said, oh, I would perhaps do it differently. And we tried. And um, so it's more like changing the structure of the training and then for sure bringing in some training sessions. What we also did is performance testing for sure, especially when you start with an athlete, it's important to to know more about the metabolic profile. So is she, yeah, how is like like I explained at the beginning of our talk, uh, what is about the aerobic system, anaerobic system? How, how strong are the, both systems, where do we have to work on? So that's what we also did, blood tests, just to know a little bit more about her body, about uh, really the, the inside of the body, and then going from there. Uh, and then also seeing how are the, the, the adaptation. So do we have a progress in, in performance? Do we have a progress uh, in, um, in load adaptation? And also there, I, I can just say, I, I saw the same thing like what I saw with Jan. The, the, I didn't expect her to to explode in that year from the performance side like she did then. So that was not my expectation. But then I saw her, her, her how she react on the training, and that was quite fascinating. So I thought, okay, it will take us more time to come there. But then she really reacted well on the training, and that was um, yeah, that was a little bit like I said with Jan. You have some some good numbers. You see some talent. You see some, yeah, something what you can work on in the next years. And then you do you apply your training, and bam, you see wow, what what a great response to what we are doing there. And um, yeah, so I I was surprised uh, that it went so fast. I think even she was surprised. Also, we were surprised what happened there. And um, yeah, it was was nice to see. <laughs> And so with, um, with that sort of change to the blocks or the periodization in Lucy's changing uh, training that you talked about, was it sort of just the same thing that you talked about that you do with yarn, like the same the same sort of three blocks that you repeat over and over again? Did you just bring that philosophy that you have um, developed uh, over your time as being a coach and, and bring that exact same philosophy and, and way of scheduling or way of um, – sort of organizing her training is is that what you meant by that yeah but uh, we were we have to shift differently the training because like i said she came from swim block there uh, and we we did really uh, um we did not so much in running we really kept the running really low so lower as with yard for example at that time and we really built it up quite slowly and uh, we put a lot of focus on the bike um just because she's really an yeah, you see her. She's an, an adult with. Uh, she's in really an. I say an, not and not this kind of. You have athletes who have more muscle mass and athletes who have less muscle mass. I don't know the right word now in English, but you, I think you understand. She's really an athletic athlete, and we want also to use this so to 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 translate this in in power also on the bike because this can be a big um, a big um, um, advantage towards other athletes. And so that's what we're focusing on. The swim, um, there for sure she knows what to do. There I just 
give uh, how much we should do and perhaps also if it's a VO2 back session, an easy session or whatever. But uh, we focused there on the bike and just tried slowly to to build up the run. And um, so there it was more this, this kind of focus, not with Jan, where we from the beginning on went really like a triathlete, trading three disciplines more or less on the same uh, stage. It was really a focus uh, more on the, on the bike. And um, then with this came a, a good, a higher aerobic endurance with the consistency, her, her whole endurance level went up. And um, yeah, and then sometimes it just, everything just fits together. So you just, if everything goes in a good direction, um, if there's no, there was no big, no big issue, um, no big sickness, whatever, no, no injury uh, until that point. So everything went really smooth, really good. Uh, so yeah, that, that's that's what we did. So it was a different program than with Jan. The, uh, the, what we can compare is the system behind. So this VO two max, um, what I said, VO two max. Um, strength endurance race uh, adaptation so that's quite similar but how we distribute the training load was different how we put the focus was different and so like obviously that worked because then lucy later on in in 2021 went on to just ride like a like an alien on that st george 70.3 course where she she rode like i think she rode 214 and from memory correct me if i'm wrong if you remember dan but i don't think anyone was in within three minutes of her off that bike um so with that block that you did with her where you're like, okay, we need to take advantage of her natural physio- physiological strengths and, and really make her as strong a cyclist as we can. How did you specifically go about that? Like what, like how did you, how did you take her from the already very good cyclist she was to, I think in that patch being the best cyclist in female triathlon? Um, basically we, uh, we, so she, what was good was that she was, or she came to that level already with, how say, with easy training methods. So there was, um, for sure, there was some specific work, but for example, we started to work with cadence. So writing different cadences, uh, try to have different motoric skills there. That's something what we, we introduced. We brought up her, her strength endurance uh, with some, some high talk work. Uh, what she didn't really do in the past, so there was a lot of space for uh, for um, for improvement. So it was not that she did already everything; that she took already everything out of her toolbox to achieve the level um, where she was at that point. So there was still a lot in the toolbox what we can use to just give new stimuli to the body. Because sometimes it's it's just about giving a new stimulus to the body so that you have a reaction that the body has to adapt to it. For sure, it should not be completely the wrong one, but um, that's what we try to avoid when we make metabolic testing. We see, okay, in which direction should it go? But then it's about giving different stimulus there. And um, that was, I think, also an, uh, our big chance that she was able to get one of the best um, athletes out there with a good training program, but with, like I said, still a lot in the toolbox what you can use as a coach and uh, what you can apply to the athlete. That's, I think, the simplest explanation. <laughs> and when you say that you sort of incorporated some some differing cadence training and, and, and a bit of high torque training or some, like, I assume by that you mean slightly higher gear, lower cadence training, um, what was some, like, examples of, like, some sessions there? So 
were you were you doing like intervals where you were where you were spending a long time at, at like pushing quite a big gear with a, a low cadence or were you doing just like her her longer sort of rides where she would she would sort of push a bigger gear and, and a lower cadence or were you doing it in amongst vo2 sessions what like what's some like specifics there that that could give clarity around around the change she made yeah, for example, um, also there are different ones. For example, there are short intervals, like if you go, for example, two times, uh, five times two minutes, where you go with 40 um, uh, RPM. And then uh, with this 40 RPM, you push perhaps like, let me say, um, 80, 85 Newton meter. So you have to calculate it then, uh, how much watts this, uh, this means for you. Um, but something like this, so short intervals where you go on power. So a little bit like strength training in the gym, but you do it on the bike. And, uh, on the other side, we also did this kind of long intervals, what you, what you know, uh, with uh, high torque with 50 to 60, um, RPM, uh, just sli slightly under threshold going for 10 to 15 minutes, three or four times, something like this, or five times. That's also something what we did. So it's, uh, um, also there, we built up first this, the potential with the short intervals to build up some strength and then try to, to build the endurance around it. So that's uh, a little bit the system what we also did there. And because she is an athletic athlete, for sure her muscles react quite well on it. So she has some strength also because she uh, did a, a lot of gym work. And it, now it was more to have this transfer from the gym work to the bike. So really being able, it's not... So if you are uh, good in squats, does not mean that you have enough power on the bike. Um, so there is a 50-50 chance that you are really able to use this. So that's why you have to see how can you transfer that power on the bike or even how can you train that power on the bike. And perhaps you don't even do have to do it on the gym. That depends a little bit. But um, it's some kind of work what, uh, what we did. And also the, the second thing was also a little bit more, I think that's perhaps also a factor a more intensity control of the sessions. So that's also something what sounds natural, but Lucy was able to come to that level with not always controlling really her intensity and training and 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 sticking to 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 numbers and whatever. So she went also on feeling uh, what is good. I like this, but at some point it can also be counterproductive. So if you always went on feeling and you do always perhaps a little bit too much, uh, or you have are always a little bit too high in the wrong intensity zone, you have also a different training effect. So I think also this helped her to be more strict, to have this clear plan, being more strict in intensity zones and seeing, okay, that's how we're doing it. That's why that's why we're doing this intensity zone. The other day we did a different one. And she also feels that if she's not doing this, she's just not able to, to fulfill the training plan because then the load gets too high. If you're always doing too much in the end of the week, you are just exhausted. And then you see, oh, I have to do another week like this and another one. How should I do this? But if you stay in your intensity zones, then you are able to also do that work. And you said that that with Jan, like his sort of main training weeks would be 25 to 30 hours a week. Do you just hold that philosophy with all your athletes and try to get them all in that sort of zone? Or say with Lucy specifically, how much volume is she doing in a in a specific block leading up to a big race like the 70.3 World Champs, for example, or or what you would have her doing if she was um, leading up to a, a big Ironman race? 
Um, yeah, I think there we were a little bit lower on volume, let me say perhaps 23 to 26 hours, something around this. Um, so there we are in general a little bit lower as with yard. So that's what I mean. We have to adapt this um, to the athletes, to what the athlete did before, um, to the actual situation. And um, But uh, if I would now compare both, then we have less volume with, uh, with her. And um, I, I don't want to sound sexist here, but I'm genuinely genuinely curious about this. In general, in your training, do your guys do more volume than your than your females, or is it completely about the individual? No, I would say that's not. Um, if you even look at studies, it seems that women can do more than men. Um, so for sure, not. No, I would not say this. Um, if it it, it depends, it depends really on. So it makes no sense if you make a lot of trading, if your body cannot really transform it in performance. And that's why you have to see if you come to a limit where the athlete just gets tired and is not able to recover anymore, then um, yeah, then it makes no sense to train 30 hours, even if uh, athlete A or B are doing 30 hours or 35 hours. There's a limit for everybody. And what I saw is that this is not related to the um, to if it's a man or a woman, it's more related to individual bodies, to capacities, to training years, to what you did in the past. Also, what how you how you um, deal with recovery. So I have athletes for them; they have really just eat, sleep, uh, train, and uh, basically that's it. And you have other athletes who. Um, also train well, who are high professional athletes, but perhaps they have some other things also to do to um, to take care about their business or whatever. Also, this has an influence on it. So that's why you have to be careful to say, okay, that's the fixed amount of hours you have to achieve at the end of the week. Um, that's, I think what is important is you should give a fee, or the athletes should know how the feeling should be at the end of the week. So should I be completely exhausted? Should I be still fresh? Uh, oh, um, I think it's, for example, good if you have a rating from one to 10. And if you say, okay, this week should feel like a, a six, and the athletes say at the end it feels like an eight, then you know, okay, you are what you wanted to do uh, was not what really happened. So I think that is also something really important that you match what you as a coach want to have with the ex uh, your expectations that they are matching with how the athlete is really feeling. And then um, you can always adapt it the load to that. Because this sometimes happens. You think everything is right because you don't see everything in the data. Um, and then at the end, you talk to the athlete. You think, yeah, the session was, was good. And you, you achieved the numbers, everything fine. And then you talk to the athlete and they say, boy, that was really, really hard run. And you say, oh, but that was not a goal. It should feel good. It should feel easy to do. And then <laughs> you have to talk. So then something is going in the wrong direction. And so with Lucy, when she put in that performance at the 70.3 World Championships, um, we, I guess, A, were you there? And B, if you weren't there, did you watch it? And, and if you were watching it, what did you think about that race? Because um, like I sort of said when, when we first started talking about Lucy, I, I was like watching that thinking, what the hell has Dan Lorang done to this girl? Like how has he made her so good? So it's good to get some insight into that. But but now I'm curious to 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 hear about what your reaction to that was. Yeah, um, like I said, I, I was um, um I said I was surprised, but not surprised like I would not believe in her, but really surprised what she was able to deliver 
on that day a, a really a perfect competition uh and yeah I, I was not there I, I couldn't be there because of my job um and i just watching it on um, online and just yeah speechless to see this and for sure you as a coach you always have goosebumps when you see this you get emotions uh it's always a shame to be not on place but that's a little bit my my destiny at the moment to have to do these uh, these different jobs <laughs> um but it was yeah i was really excited and i was so happy for for her but also so happy for the team around for like i said starting with re starting with the physiotherapist with everybody who's working with her just finally to get the first world title and um yeah and also for myself to be a, a small part of it so it was nice to see and uh but it was it was already so good um I don't know if you talk also about what happens after, but it was so good that I just think, fuck, it just went too good. <laughs> it, it's, it was amazing to see. And um, yeah, but yeah, at, these, at that moment when I saw it, I was happy and had goosebumps and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah. And you've just had some amazing moments in your career. Like you have a, like, it's crazy some of the success you've had and, and whether you take a small amount of credit for that or not, it's, it's very evident that you're a, a massive factor in it. Um, so that, that is my next question. How do these athletes, like, you know, Jan puts in that performance in 2019, as does, as does Annie Haug, which we'll, we'll come to, but Lucy puts in that performance, winning her first ever world title in like one of the best triathlon performances of all time. What happens between you guys after that win? Like, does Lucy ring you? And like, what kind of conversation are you guys having? Because I can only imagine how how like Lucy, for example, starts working with you and her and Risa like, well, Dan's this, you know, amazing coach. I'm like, they're hopeful that, that you're going to help them. And, and, and I guess that's all it is. No one knows. And then she sort of puts in that performance and, and I assume in her mind, she, she's just like, that just confirms above all else, how, how, you know, um, great a call it was to bring you into a camp. So what, what is the first sort of communication with you guys after a, a race like that? Um, that is different from athlete to athlete. So in that situation, um, I think, first of all, um, it was, uh, yeah, Reese who immediately sent me a picture from the, from the finish line and, and, and thanks to be, to be part of that. Um, and, um, with Lucy, I think I talked then, I think it was, yeah. So I, we wrote shortly after the race and so some congrats and, and thank you on both sides. But I think there we come back to our start. We both knew that for sure I had an impact on that performance. But for sure the biggest impact was what happened all the years before. All the people who brought her in that situation, who brought her uh, also to that point. So I think we both had this idea in mind to say, okay, perhaps we. I gave the last, last um, boost to it. But basically, that's that's now a reward for all the people who have been there that, that the past years. And it's not because Dan is now there and I won now the world champion. That's, that's at least how I see it. We never talked in that detail with, with Lucy, but I think that's a little bit the situation. And that's also good. That is like this. Like I said, I brought in a lot of respect for what they achieved already. And that's why I keep also myself back and say, okay. I made now the program together with you and we were lucky to achieve that, that success. I don't know how many percent I contribute to it. Um, uh, and yeah, we were just happy and for sure she said she was really happy and said thank you and it was, was nice to chat. 
Um, but um, yeah, it's it's different. For example, if you look with, um, um, uh, I don't know if I take now any, and we're working it's, uh, 18 years together, you know, and you get, I don't know, world champion in 2019, for sure that's, uh, it's clear, it's it's different. It's a work what we did over the years, and there was not so much interference. And uh, now with Lucy, it was the first year, the first month that we worked together. We won already World Championship title, and it was um, emotionally it was was really nice. But as respect, I would say that's really the, the result of a lot of work from the people behind the scenes over the last years. And I just put the sherry on the cake, and that was it basically. And uh, yeah, that's at least how I see it. Otherwise, you have to ask Lucy. <laughs> and then sort of two more questions on Lucy specifically, Dan. So um, I'm, I'm not sure if this, is, if, if this is known or not. Is Lucy doing Ironman World Championships this year? Um, so we, we discussed about it. And if everything goes according to plan, uh, then she will do for sure. Um, yeah, that's now we should, I don't know when she will make it public. That's why I'm a little bit, um, yeah, right. we have to be careful if we now send it in the podcast or not. Um, yeah, but if everything goes according to plan, if she stays healthy, if everything is good, if we see that it's no risk, then she will go, yeah. And with that, have you already built ideas in your head or have you already started um like I'm assuming you've already sort of started the the progression in your training to get there. It's obviously not that far off now. Have has anything else changed in your training with Lucy since what we're talking about? Those initial bike changes and and restructuring of the periodization in her program um, in your build up to to try and finally get her that elusive Ironman World Championship win after she's uh, come second there three times. Um. Yes and no. So. Uh, yeah, we, we had that, that really bad injury where it took us a, a long time to come back. That's why we are for sure really careful also with the one. Also now a little bit like the same as we started when she came from a swimming period. Um, but um, so in 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 my head, or the idea was immediately when she got that injury, um, after yeah, after a lot of um, you know, since bad, bad moments, what you have when one of your athletes have an injury like this, um, I was pretty clear about the idea how we could go to, to Kona. So what could be the plan if the healing process would go according to what I knew from the past. So that's why the plan was in, in roughly already ready. And then it was now more a little bit about how will she recover? How will she respond to the training? How, um, yeah, also now the, the last competition, we were not sure if it goes right or wrong. We didn't really prepare that competition. We said, okay, there is a fair chance that she can go to Kona. So we prepared the training for Kona. And on that way, we need some, some landmarks to see where we are. And the worlds um, on the last weekend have been one of these. We saw it went pretty well. And, um, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a process and a plan what should have no risk at all. So if she would now say, oh, I mm, I don't feel so well, whatever, it would be then immediately that we say, okay, let's let's take it easier. Um, but now the approach is then to be, yeah, to continue that process what we started um, before the injury and, uh, but still having more focus on the bike uh, like, uh, like on the run because it's just not possible. You cannot just come back after this kind of injury and say, 
we put now more focus on the run, but we see that she can also run fast without a lot of running uh, kilometers. And that's not only with Lucy, we see some other other athletes out there who are also doing it the same. We just need to build up a, a big aerobic base for that and then having a good transfer. And um, I I also think the, the the injury had some some if if you can add, if you can name it positive, it has some positive impact because she worked a lot on um uh yeah on on small things like um controlling the muscle the right things, uh, running technique, strengthening the right muscle parts, getting away from the disbalance what she had. So there were at least some good points in this. And this will also help us, I think, for the future to increase performance, but also to avoid, hopefully, injuries. Like always, I just want to take a quick 60-second break to thank the amazing Patreon supporters of the podcast. I'm a one-man team out here trying to do this on top of everything else in life. I'm super passionate about it, and really, at the end of the day, I just want to give you guys as much great content as I possibly can. So for those of you who choose to give me $5 a week uh, of your hard-earned as a best friend of the show on Patreon or $2 per week of your, of your hard-earned as a very good friend of the show on Patreon, just know that you're literally the only reason this show can continue. And hey, if you're someone who listens and you get that much uh, worth of enjoyment or value out of the show each week, but you haven't signed up yet, just know that if you do, it, it really does form a community that means this podcast can continue growing and, and stay alive. Um, it, it's just so appreciated. And I guess a, a good way to think of it is that this podcast could sort of be the equivalent of supporting a small business that you love in your town. With all that being said, the first best friend of the show to thank this week is Daniel Hubble. Daniel is new to the sport and responsible for one of my favorite messages I've ever received on the How They Train Instagram. He, uh, he sent me a, a, a random picture one day of him drinking a couple of pints of beer in like some absolutely random pub that had the PTO Canadian open on the TV there. Uh, and when like has a pub ever had triathlon on the TV in it? Like maybe outside of um, an Olympic cycle when the Olympics are just on the channel all day and, and you know, by some crazy coincidence you go, you go in there and the triathlon's on. But yeah, the, the Canadian open, that just didn't make sense to me. And, and why Daniel had two beers and not just one, he must be a bit of a loose unit, but love that. Um, he, he just also gets the sport. Like when he messages me, I can just tell he understands what he's watching in races way more than most people that are new to the sport. And, and um, he also loves the outrageous things that Steve McKenna says on the Training Diaries episodes on Patreon, which it's not, not no secret that I also love that. So thanks heaps for your support on Patreon, Daniel. Next up is Stephen Bovolino. Uh, Stephen has been a listener of the show for a long time. He was one of those people who messaged me with support of the show, like when not many people were even listening to the show, let alone telling me that they enjoyed it. Um, he's a Bendigo lad and, and he's a bloke who I love talking triathlon with. Similar to Daniel in that way, actually. Stephen just gets the sport or like maybe he just has a similar opinion on the sport as me and we view so many things the same way that we just have confirmation bias and that's why I think he understands it. But either way, I agree with everything he tells me about the sport. He also did a master's in foot strike mechanics in long distance runners, which I find like super interesting. So if anyone wants to geek out on runners and running technique or triathlon, then I can confirm that in my opinion, Stephen is your man. Thanks so much, you two, for signing up and supporting the show on Patreon. Um, it, it, Like I said before, it just means so much to me and keeps the show alive. Like I always say, if you signed up as a best friend and I haven't thanked you yet, just know that it is coming soon. 
And, and yeah, like I like I was saying before, I'm essentially that small business that you'd love and think, oh, I really should go and buy something from there. And then you never do. And eventually you walk past it one day and it's got like wooden boards or wooden planks all over the front door and the front windows and about four to five months worth of mail slipped under the door because it's shut down. So if you want to support me and help keep the show alive and growing, then for the price of just a, a weekly coffee, you can do that. And trust me, it means so much more to me than you probably even realize. Enjoy the rest of the app with Dan, guys. And uh, with all this chat about Lucy Charles, I think um, I think the next obvious step is is to talk about Annie Haug, who um, who beat Lucy Charles at the the 2019 uh, Ironman World Championships. So Lucy came second, and six six and a half minutes up the road in winning the race was was Annie Haug, who who you also coach, and and that was the same year that Jan Fredino. Um, beat second place by almost nine minutes and, and set the course record at Kona. So as far as I know, I'm like my history of triathlon is pretty good for the most part, apart from the really early days. But as far as I know, you're the first person to ever coach the, the male and female winner at the Ironman World Championships in the pro race. So can you talk to me about that day specifically and, and maybe a little bit about about your year with, with Arne, you know, who you've obviously coached for for almost 20 years, like you said, and and finally for her to get that really massive breakthrough and and just yeah, just just what was going on with you that day when when both of those guys won? Oh, I I have already goosebumps now when I think about that day. So that's uh, yeah, it was was really um, really special. And to be honest, this started earlier already. I had uh, when I was on a on a I go on a daily run normally, and one as one one day I had the idea, what would happen if you would have both athletes as uh, Skoda champions, so that would be. It was just like a like a dream, just completely crazy. But I I had this idea in mind, and I don't know exactly the day, but even I put it somehow on Twitter a post like um, I think Kona two wins or something like this, and just to keep me as a as a reminder. And yeah, then the idea was gone. And for yeah for Annie, it was a pretty hard year. She was also got an injury, a bad injury in that year. And it was even not sure that she can go to Kona because, first of all, she had to make the qualification really late. I think it was in, was it in August? I think in August. The last, one of the last possibilities to make the qualification. That's uh, where she did it. And uh, because she was also not able to run some until some weeks before the qualification race. Uh, but also, uh, up there, when she got injured, we make a plan. I said, okay, we will work on the swim. We will work on the bike. Just make your body ready at the, until the moment when you can come back to, to swimming, uh, to, to running. And that's what we had, what we did. And um, I can remember that on the qualification race, I was, um, I was, I was away and I didn't have a, um, a good connection on my mobile phone. And in the evening, I got connection again. And then I just got some messages like, wow, Annie was strong. She broke the German record. And I said, what? What happened? Because for me, it was like would have been the, the best news just that she finished the Ironman, uh, had the qualification spot, and that would be already enough. But then I read, and I, I, I she also sent me already a voice message that everything went quite smooth, that she was good. She did a good run. And then we said, okay, good. that was the first surprise. And then we went to Kona. And some days before the start, um, I told you we have two options. One option to go is to be conservative. Um, the year before, she has been third. And we said, okay, perhaps we try to repeat this. 
because we don't know what happened on a marathon because she has never done a run longer than um, um, than this this marathon in the qualification race. So that was the only long run during the whole preparation phase. And even after, we need some time to recover, so we didn't have time to do another long run, long run before Kona. And then I said, okay, we don't know what will happen. Um, so one thing would be to make sure that you come, or make sure, to, to have a tactic that you are able to go to the podium. Then I think it will be good performance. I think the sponsor will be happy. And after this bad injury, what you had this year, um, I think that would already be a big achievement. And then she said, yeah, but what is the second option? I said, the second option is that we go all in, completely risked, um, and with the risk that you blow up on the run. Uh, and that would be the strategy to go for the win. And then for her, it was clear, I don't, for me, it doesn't matter if I get third, fourth, fifth, or whatever, I want to try to win the race. That's my goal. And then I said, okay, good. <laughs> then uh, we made a strategy on the bike. We we defined yeah, some kind of range, some kind of numbers where it should stay in. And uh, then she went for it. And uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was a really amazing day. Jan had a perfect day, like I said before. It was his best race, long distance race ever. I think from feeling, from numbers, from everything. I, Annie did a, a great job. I was there. I was in Coda. I was with her um, when I, I was on the bike. So always following a little bit the, the situation. And yeah, when then she passed uh, Lucy, it was yeah, it was it was really amazing, and I, you never have to be, you never can be sure of the victory in Kona until the finish line. So, I always thought, oh, hopefully nothing, nothing happened now, and hopefully everything goes good. But when she then crossed the finish line, it was, yeah, really, really amazing. I cannot describe this in words. It was Jan winning, then Annie winning, and then with with Annie, um, like I said, I coached her at that point for uh, sixteen years. So then winning a world title like this is, is something really special. And um, yeah, it's a day that I for sure will never forget. It was also like, okay, that's, well, yeah, it's it's amazing. Like I said, I don't really have the words. And every time when I see a picture of it or when I think back on that day, it's um, it's, uh, it's great. It's, um, yeah, it was just a, a perfect, a perfect day. and. Um, yeah, there were also not big words needed when she came to the finish line. We just um, yeah, looked at each other and say, "Okay, that's so." Finally, <laughs> we are there. <laughs> so it was nice. And with with Anne, what do you think? Like, obviously, she's so well known for her running ability, particularly her running ability off the bike. But but you were coaching her through her ITU or WTS days, where. Um, I, I don't know how many people would have even watched a, a, an Anne Hag race back in the day, but she was just one of those one of those girls who, if she was there on the swim, almost no one was outrunning her on her day. Like she's always been one of the the fastest runners in triathlon. Um, is that a natural thing with with Anne, like Anne, or, or is it something that has come about through through specific work you've done in training? Like I know you said with Lucy that Lucy can run pretty well without actually doing that much in training is 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 like your approach in lucy's training pretty similar to to annie's training or is is she like does she have like much um much bigger focuses on on running and does she do a lot more running or some bigger running blocks or or yeah i I know you've said it's pretty individual but can you talk to me about what makes her so special there um 
Yeah, so I would say it's it's also linked to her passion for the run. So she loves triathlon. Uh, she's also okay with swim and bike, but her passion is really the run. So she really loves to run. And it was also always the discipline where she reacts the fastest on, on training stimuli. So if you if she's able to run some weeks consistently, uh, you just see the performance going up uh, Yeah, uh, really, really fast. Um, what is not the same for the bike or for the swim, where she also has to put more work in to get the same um, the same benefits. So that's why, by natural, also, so, so she has a run talent for sure. She's also a really um, so she's a light athlete. So she's not um, so she, she, for her, for her also um, the distance is not a problem. The heat is not a problem. Her, her running style, her running technique, is really nice to watch when you see her leaning a little bit forward. Um, so for sure, this is something what she, what she brought into triathlon, this natural talent for, for running. Uh, but the other thing is, and that's why we are quite close to Lucy. Uh, you have to be really, really careful with what you are doing with certain run, because from the biomechanical side, she brings not the best, um, the best constitution. Because um, when you look at, at her legs, when you look how 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 the, the the joints are over each other, we see that there are yeah for running there is always the risk for for injuries. That's why she needs have a good physiotherapist around her, taking really care, taking care like I said about the load, how much you put in, how much volume you put. So there you have to be careful, and that's why um, we can compare it a little bit to Lucy's running where uh, we also have to be careful and we cannot make these big, big volumes. Um, it would work with Annie. So if Annie would, would be able to run these big volumes from the metabolic side, that could, would work really well. So that's why so volume works for her quite good. But if you cannot do it in the run, you have to do it differently. So that's why we use the swim and the bike. And um, but by, that's why that's this individual approach. So we would like to do more. But it's from the biomechanical side really difficult, and she got some injuries during her career. Uh, and so even be, with being careful, try to take no risk. Even there, things happened, and um, that's why we can compare them a little bit from the from the training side. For sure, we are not doing always the same sessions, but if you would now look just at pure volume, we could compare both. Yeah, and I guess. The next really obvious thing to start talking about with you is is your actual job. Apart from, you know, we've just spent an hour talking about your part time job as a as a triathlon coach and and maybe the best the best triathlon coach to ever do it, which is pretty funny, Dan. Um, but cycling coaching. So, like I said in the intro, and have brought up again, you're the the head of performance or the head coach of of um, Bora Hansgrohe, who you know, um, pretty special place in Australian hearts with with Jai Hindley winning a um, a Giro d'Italia and a Giro d'Italia and being uh oh god is he the first Australian to ever win the Giro d'Italia I think he would have to be I can't I think, think so of, huh? yeah, yeah I can't think of anyone else who has off the top of my head like a few guys have have worn the pink jersey or Cadel Evans did he win the no, I don't think so he wore he wore the pink jersey but I don't think he ever won it and and Richie Port obviously yeah. wore, wore the pink jersey for a bit in his first year as a pro but I don't think he won it either either um, I'm not quite the cycling historian the way I am I am triathlon yeah. but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he's the first guy to win it so. Yeah, I, I I guess what I what I really want to talk about. There's so much I could talk about here, um, but I want to talk about how it compares setting programs and training sessions and 
um, and and being the coach of of a Grand Tour contender, so a GC cyclist, someone you know like a like a Chris Froome or a Tadej Pogacar, and how that compares to your your programming and and setting of training with a with a, a Jan Fredino or a Lucy Charles, um, who are obviously also at the top of their sport. So, we we with with your guys who are who are trying to win the Tour de France or who have won the Giro d'Italia or the Volta Espana. How how does that training differ? Like how how does your approach to to setting their program differ? Um, so mainly it's also endurance sports, so it's not so uh, completely far uh, far away. But um, the, um, the the race dynamics are complete. Oh yeah, what you need in racing is a little bit different. So in, in cycling, it's not about going for six hours or for for four or five hours the same speed or nearly the same speed and uh, try to be um, as economically as possible in cycling it's about uh, or the, the main thing is being able after um, four or five hours still to mobilize a lot of energy to for example on the last climb uh, to make get a difference and also to be able to uh, to follow rhythm changes to react um, so it's more more dynamic and i think the riders what you can pick, compare the most with Triathletes are on one side time trialists and on the other side for sure the GC contenders. Also from the personality, GC contenders come the closest, I would say, to um, to triathletes. Um, because if you take a classic rider or a sprinter, they are also from the personality uh, completely different. But GC riders, they come close to that. But what is different in cycling compared to triathlon is uh, already starting with the environment so in cycling you are a member of a team you get your monthly salary you have your your coach you have your staff around and basically what you have to care of is um, to do your training to prepare you well um, you are a lot of times away from home you have a lot of competitions so perhaps a cyclist is on the road um, yeah i would say 180 let me say 180 days a year with altitude camp or whatever, perhaps even 200 days. So, um, but um, you you have you, you 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 basically you get the environment for this. Um, and with a trial lead, they create this environment. So they create their teams. They are looking for the team members, um, depending also on the money what you have. Um, if you can create this, and you have just some competition during the year. So. Uh, why I, I explain this is you also find these differences in the in the work with the athletes. So my feeling is a little bit that um, the relations in triathlon are perhaps they are professional, but they are a little bit more personal. It's just like 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 in cycling because in cycling it could be the rider is is with you for um, for for two years and then he changed team then he gets another coach and so he have adapted again to this and he's so it's more there's more um more, there are more changes in it and um so that that, that is a little bit the difference when you are in the daily work when you are with the cycle in the training camp when you are um at the race then for sure you are really close you you try to do the best program you make the same measurements you make your lactate measurements vo2 measurements you uh, uh, core temperature, whatever. So you use the same tools, and uh, from the philosophy of training, it's it's the same approach. You look at the metabolic profile, look, okay, what does he need? Uh, where do we have to work on? But you have shorter shorter amount of times because, like I said, they have sixty to eighty race days, and the triathlete perhaps has 
yeah, perhaps let me say 12 to 15, or then it's a lot already. So it's um, you don't have so much time to make these buildups. So there's not so much space for error. So you really have to make sure that um, that you're doing the right things at the right moment and using just a shorter amount of time to prepare the athlete as good as possible. And then you also have the factor of the race itself. So how, if, if the rider goes to a one-week stage race, you a little bit have to have in mind how will be the effect of this one-week stage race to the whole process, preparing, for example, for the Tour de France. And this is something really special compared to triathlon, where you just have this one race and then recover, you go to the next or whatever. So triathlon, to make it short, you can plan better. Cycling, it's much more dynamic, much more what you have to, much more external influences, what you have to consider. And it's not like um, that you can just make the plan and this will now work for the next week. So you have, there are a lot of more, more influence factors, what, what you have to consider, what makes it also um, more difficult in the, um, in the yearly planning, in the, in the daily, in the training plan itself, it's not more difficult because then you have, you just have to plan athletic training and, and cycling training in triathlon you plan three disciplines plus perhaps the gym uh, so that's easier in cycling but to integrate it in the full season with with altitude to keep the mental aspect like i said if they are 200 days away from home it's also a, a really high mental aspect and perhaps you want to go once more to altitude training on the other side um, he doesn't want to be away from the family you also have to deal with this situation so it's it's a completely uh, it's a different field there are different challenges i would call I'd say in cycling than in triathlon there's been this thing in cycling forever and i think it's something triathlon could learn from and do better where they've made these like documentaries or people have written these books and they're, they're these these really captivating stories that that sort of take you inside uh, like a training camp or a, a block leading into a tour de france or a grand tour and they sort of they, they, they make it seem like they're doing this crazy stuff and and like I, I almost want to say like this inhuman stuff where where it's like they give you a little bit but not all of it and it's sort of alluring and it, it makes you just it just makes you crave more information about what they're doing and, and like I'm sitting here talking to the head coach of a, a cycling team so I've got to try and get inside that a little bit more so when you're leading up to a, a Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia with Jai Hindley or Emmanuel Bookman or I think it was Vlasov you guys went into with your leader in 2022, um, what are you actually doing with these guys in the build-up to a Grand Tour? Aside from all the organisational and race tactic side of things and, and playing with move, moving pieces, the nuts and bolts of your, say, like, you know, six to 12 weeks leading into a grand tour. What do their training weeks look like? Like how much volume are they doing? What kind of sessions are they doing? How much climbing are they doing? How much time trialing are they doing? Um, how many efforts are they doing? What do their intervals look like compared to triathletes? And yeah, all of this stuff, that's a lot of questions I've just asked, but yeah, I'm so fascinated by it. Yeah. So, um, when you take now one of the GC contenders in modern cycling, altitude plays a big role. So um, when you make the season plan, you look when is your main top uh, main goal, like the Tour de France, and then you you, you just um, put your altitude blocks and look, okay, where does it make sense? So basically, for example, what, what a lot of teams did um, uh, for this year, Tour de France, is, for example, 
doing the first part of the season, having a break, and then going in front of Dauphiné. Dauphiné is a, a one-week stage race, going to altitude for two, two and a half weeks, making the race, and then going back to altitude in front of the Tour de France, and then going immediately from the altitude camp to the Tour de France race. So altitude itself plays already a big role. And that's why you also need time to do this. So if you do a lot of races, you just don't have the time to do altitude. And then perhaps you also lack this altitude uh, training or this altitude effect in the Grand Tour. From training-wise, it's um, that's interesting. I also made a talk about this where I compared Buchmann, um, so Emmanuel Buchmann to Jan Frodeno. Um, from the volume we talk about, normally so in general, when it's a guy like like uh, like Buchmann, twenty five or let me say twenty three to twenty eight hours, something around this of um, being on the bike and doing some gym work, and these are when you look at it similar, a little bit similar numbers than what we have in triathlon. I also compared the the overall load from one year from from uh, Emmanuel to Jan, and basically we come to the same amount, nearly the same amount of hours of endurance work. Not the gym work, they are, the trial itself, um, or Jan had a lot more, but the endurance work. So, uh, and that shows us, and that's also what you find in literature, that there is seems to be a need to have a certain amount of endurance hours to reach world-class levels. So that's something what, what we see. There are some similarities in uh, when we compare these two different sports. But then it's um, because you said uh, about which kind of training session what we are doing. So when I said for um, for the triathletes, uh, it's important that they are able to go at a constant pace for a longer time in the Ironman. Um, when you compare this to a cyclist, there, especially when we do intervals, we we at the beginning of the season we do, for example, the intervals quite. We do a warm up and then we are doing intervals depending also there on the period. So there it's the same. We also have. VO2 max period, we have a, a force endurance period, we have a, a race specific period. So that's, I think we can compare this a little bit. But um, we start with the interval at the beginning of the training, but when it come closer and closer to the season, like we mentioned, six, eight weeks leading into the race, then we also train going for four hour rides with some fart legs and then making some race specific efforts. So training really the body to use energy at the end after having spent two, 3,000 kilojoules already in the training or even 4,000 being able to to um, to use it. And um, then working on lactate clearance. So being able to, when you go over threshold for some time that your body is able to use that, um, that um, lactate again as an energy source. Also something what we what we train um, in, in cyclists quite often is over under, that's a little bit how uh, how it, it's called uh, in in the sports world, and um, TT training that depends a little bit. I would say for the GC riders, normally in direct preparation, two to three times a week. Um, we have we have some world class TT riders, not in our team, but in general on the peloton who works every day their TT bike. But I would say at our team we have normally three TT sessions per week. Also combining it with road sessions. So for example, in the morning, you go with the TT bike, two, two and a half hours with some TT efforts. Basically, the TT efforts, they are made more on threshold. So they are, um, try to, yeah, to, to be on threshold or perhaps 103% of threshold doing, for example, four times, five times, or let me say four times, 10 minutes 
to six times 10 minutes and then you have one hour of threshold and then in the afternoon or immediately after doing just easy uh, bike uh, easy ride on the road bike so there we try to uh, to combine it but um in general this um these are different sessions what you're doing. We're working in the, uh, a lot of, we are doing a lot of climbs in the preparation phase, just to give you an, an idea if we are in training camp in, in altitude. And um, if we just look at the climbing meters for one week, um, we reach something like, um, um, for example, yeah, here we, we are in an altitude camp. We are doing climbing meters of, for example, um, 80,000 to yeah, 20,000 meters of climbing in one week. So where we basically train this kind of um, lot of climbing during um, a, grand, a grand tour. Um, so I think that's, um, it's adapted really to, to, the, to the race specificity. Um, I think um, it's, it's important, for example, on one side to have the metabolic adaptation, but also the specific muscle, muscle adaptation, because the, one of the limiting factors in a three-week scrum tour is that the muscles get tired. And the recovery of the muscle, it's the thing what takes really a long time. In triathlon, you do a competition and you can take your time to recover because the next competition normally is, yeah, you have time to recover. But in cycling, you go with the next day and the next day and the next day. For sure, you don't have this impact, what you have in running, but still you have some kind of muscle fatigue. And um, with this muscle fatigue, is you have to train your body that it can recover faster from this. And that's why we simulate this um, uh, in training with, like I said, also a lot of climbing meters. And automatically, when you do climbing meters, you also train your strength endurance. Um, so, yeah, that's how I, I, I would describe it. It's, it's really difficult to say, okay, that's exactly what we are doing now six weeks in front of a, of a ground tour because uh, then I would have to mention every single training session, but we we work normally in two to three days blocks. So two two days of load, one week recovery, or three days um, of training, one week, uh, one day recovery. That's basically how we work uh, in cycling. It's not that we doing two weeks in a row to simulate uh, a contour or something like that. So that is that is not happening. So we, we always keep this kind of um, training rhythm and um, always try to just simulate contours by the accumulation of two or three weeks of training, but not by just exactly try to um, to um, to copy the load of a three-week um, uh, contour. Because that was also a question I got some days ago. How do you train this? Do you also do three weeks of training in a uh, three weeks of uh, of load in a training? And that's something what we don't do because. After a grand tour, you have to recover quite a while. And if you have to do this in training, you are missing a lot of training. So that's why we cannot do this. Two weeks ago, I had Cameron Worth on the on the podcast who, you know, you would know as well as I do. And he um, he obviously is riding for the Ineos Grenadiers at the moment. And I asked him because he was talking about some of the guys he was he was training with, like he's trained with some of the, the best Grand Tour riders uh, of all time at their at their best, like Chris Froome and Richie mm. Port and, and Grant Thomas and... And I asked him, like, when you do sessions with them, like, say you're doing a longer climb or something, are they just doing numbers and doing things that even make you think, like, oh, how the fuck are these guys climbing so fast? And he, and he said, no, not really. Like, generally in training, like, I am riding as well as them, if not even sometimes a little better. And, and then what happens as they get closer and closer and closer to a grand tour, 
they start to put a really heavy emphasis on staying healthy but losing quite a lot of weight. And he said mm-hmm. that that's where he notices that he suddenly can't keep up with them on climbs and they start climbing like aliens. So do you do that with your guys? Like how big a focus is weight for your GC contenders who are trying to win the Tour de France or, or the Giro d'Italia? Mm. Yeah, it's a really sensitive topic, this weight, because exactly that is what happens sometimes or a lot of times, like he described it, that uh, the last performance gains are done over what uh, to kilo. And uh, then you also see some dramatic weight loss from the riders. Um, Personally, it's not my favorite way to do it. So as a coach, I I would say, okay, try to keep your weight normally two to three kilos over race weight and then go down slightly, slowly, because then you don't have this immune, the problem with the immune system, your body still stays strong. But to be honest, yeah, in the, in the climbs, normally watts per kilo are really, really uh, important. So there are some tendencies that we see. So there is a point where it turns for sure. So if you're losing weight and you just get weak, uh, you lose muscle mass, you even lose your VO2, uh, then there could be a point that um, the rate decreasement uh, is not in favor of performance. But in general, the last bit of it comes not because they're pushing more watts, but because they're pushing more watts per kilo. That's I also can can confirm this. And it's a small balance, a small, uh, not a balance, a small a small pass on which you go because the risk is always, uh, or let me say like this, I, I just said before, a preparation could be going to altitude, doing Dauphiné, going to altitude and doing race. So if uh, now, like Cameron said, if athletes are losing weight in this period, so in a period where they are at altitude, so high external load where they're for sure training a lot, perhaps even racing, and even and then losing weight, so there are a lot of factors who have an impact on your body, and um, it could also go in the completely wrong direction. So that you get just to the point that you overdo it, and then there's no performance at all. But it's it's true that is how often it happens. So really, that you are in this fear, and if you read in the books, normally you should not lose weight in altitude. You should keep the same weight. So this is a theory. But in practice, things go a little bit different. And um, that's why I also say to the athletes, you you have to understand what it means to be a, a high professional athlete, in this case, a high professional cyclist. It's The weight is one part of it. You should not get crazy of the weight. So it's just a number, first of all. But um, it's easier if you have, if you like what you're doing, if you maintain a healthy lifestyle, if you are not overweighted seven, eight kilos at the off season, just that you, if you love what you do, if you look to triathletes, there, I also see a little bit the difference. But, but I think it also comes because of less racing. If you look at at Jan or Annie or whatever, perhaps in off season they have, I don't know, perhaps also three to four kilo, something like this, uh, two to four kilo more. But it's not that they gain a lot, massive rate. And if you look at some cyclists, they really gain a lot of rate. And in the last six years, we are working in cycling and try to find a little bit out what is the reason for this. Uh, why? Because at the beginning, it was just for me, makes no sense at all. So, and I also didn't know it from triathlon. But now you see more and more what kind of stress is there. What, um, like I said, with the racing, with the traveling, uh, with the the pressure, and yeah, there are different aspects, and that's why nutrition, weight. A healthy attitude towards the sport, healthy mental health attitude is really, really important. And 
you have to uh, keep a focus on that. And if I said it comes down to what per kilo, you also in the same moment have to be careful if you say this, because if an athlete, athlete jumps every day on the scale, and if his day starts good or bad, depending on which number is on the scale, I think that you have a problem also. So that's why it's a really difficult topic. One difficult topic to the next, Dan, I've got to ask you about it. <laughs> so obviously with uh, with the 2022 Tour de France, there was as much talk as I've sort of heard in, in recent times about doping. And um, I think maybe because of the performances of Jonas Vinegard and, and Tadej Pogacar and how young they are. And, and, and I think a lot of people were questioning, you know, how are these guys doping? Is the sport clean? I think actually my probably experience from, from, from listening to commentary around it and hearing people talk just in day-to-day life is people just now accept that they are, they are doping. I really want to get your opinion on this as a coach of a, of a grand tour, um, you know, or a team, a cycling team with grand tour ambitions who are trying to compete with, with those guys. Where do you see the sport at at the moment? Do you, do you know whether it's clean or, or, or whether people are still doping and, 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 or, or just, yeah, like just talk to me about your experience with it. So my opinion is, um, oh, I I want to work in a, in an environment for sure that is clean, that way I can believe that everything, what we achieve, we achieve by pure work, sci- uh, science, uh, commitment and whatever. So for sure, not with doping. And uh, that would also be the point for me to say, okay, that's that's it for me. So, for example, if one of my athletes uh, in the cycling team or whatever also tried it with dope, for sure, I would be the first one saying, hey, uh, going to the court and just saying, hey, what you are doing there, you're just not hurting yourself, uh, your career, you're also hurting your coach, your team. And yeah, so that's for sure not a, uh, not a good way to go. So I think um, or what I saw the last six years was that at least in our team, I saw nothing. I saw a normal performance game. I saw we 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 got a lot of victories, and um, I'm really careful with this because if we take 2019, that was for me as a coach, we, like I said, really a crazy year. Two world champions in triathlon, some other main victories in triathlon. I think uh, I coached there. I don't know six or seven athletes in the team. We have with these athletes 35 victories, something like that, and so. Also, people from outside, even they said, yeah, but what are they doing and why Why are his athletes so successful? And for sure, he has something new. And so I read this in the internet and I was, people send me these messages and I was really like, oh, fuck, what's, what's going on here? And then I, do, I don't even care because I think if you once start to comment this, then it's over. So it makes just no sense. But I, what I want to say is you can suddenly be in a situation that you are that people think you are doing something illegal and you just try to, to do a job, do a good job. And also the athletes try to do, it, to do a good job. And as a coach, I see how different athletes are. Like I said, with Jan Frodeno, when I start to coach him, for me to see how fast he responds to training was something amazing. And I saw it's possible and for sure without any kind of doping. And I see that there are not every human being is, is the same. There are different responses, genetic responses. So, that's why I cannot pretend a guy like Vinegard for sure he has to dope, or a guy like Van Aert um, um, uh, has to take doping. Otherwise, it's not possible. No, I just don't know. I think they're doing it on a clean way. I think they have just some good environment, some good genetic response. But you can never be never be hundred percent sure. But we, that is like in your whole life. You, if you, I don't know, if you're working for a company, you can never be hundred percent sure that 
your company is working in a 100% legal way. It's just in sports. It's just in a short, uh, small universe of uh, that that's reflects the whole world. So there are good people, there are bad people. And you will never be 100% um, safe uh, about that. I think it's just important for yourself that you say, okay, that's for me the line. I want to work with my athletes and with my uh, yeah with my athletes in a, in a, uh, without doping with anything what is illegal. Try to 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 achieve the maximum performance possible, getting everything out what is possible. If it's the win, for sure it's nice. If it's a second or a third or a fifth plate, and if it was the maximum possible, it's it's still good. It's fine, and um, so that's for me quite clear. But I would I cannot say. There's no doping in sport, but I would also not say for sure there was 2022 because it was the fastest tour. For sure, there must be doping in place. I, um, yeah, I, I would not comment on on either the other one one sentence or the other because I just don't know. I just can say what I see in our team is we we are we try or we're not trying. We're doing it really clean, and even. We are far away from what you could even do because you know there's some kind of borderline, and we are far away from that. So we are just really doing basic, basic things, and try to be successful with it. Do you think there's like any part of you that that like has this mindset because you are at heart uh, like someone who got involved in the sport and coaching because you love it, and your passion is performance? Do you think there's any part of you that? that is just naive to it and you want to believe it. So that, that I guess you, you tell yourself that I don't think it's there because if you thought it was there and you weren't willing to do it, obviously, like you said, there's no real point being in it because how can you compete with someone who is doing it? If you're, you and your guys aren't doing it. Like, do you think, does a part of you need to believe it's not there for you to be able to wake up every day with passion and ambition and, and, and like working towards the goal of, 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 Winning a Tour de France or or winning the Ironman World Championships, for example. Um, hmm. I, I think it's make just no. It's just a waste of energy for me to think about because what what is if I think about it, what would be the consequence? So if I think, for example, somebody now, so my athlete gets second, the first one got got the win, and I think, oh, for sure he he took something, or perhaps he took something because I don't know. What will be the consequence? So I, I just have an, an excuse for my athletes why he didn't won, but uh, I but I don't I I'm, I don't know. So I cannot influence this, and I I don't want to waste too much energy on things that I cannot influence. If I would see it, for sure I would not close the eyes. That's what what I want to point out. So if I would see now an athlete doing something illegal, I would not close my eyes and say, oh no, I don't want to see. For sure not. Like I said, that would be my the first point to say to me, okay, I don't know if this is still the right environment for me. So probably not. Probably I would go out and do something else. But I have never been at that point. And um, it makes for me no sense to think about, is was this rider no doped or not? Because I don't know it. And also when I talk to my athletes, when they tell me, yeah, but perhaps they take something, what should I tell them? Yeah, for sure, uh, they take something. We have no chance at all. And what is the consequence? So that's, you know, so there it's no real consequence. It's just, in my opinion, a little bit of ways of energy to to make too much thoughts about it. On the other side, for sure, you should not uh, um, close your eyes and just do if there would be nothing, because then you are not better than the others. I think that is for sure um, thing. Um, what, what is really important. 
if I would see somebody in our team, see some staff members, see some of my athletes doing that for sure, I would um, yeah, try to find out what is going on and, and talk to them and talk to the team. And um, yeah, but <laughs> luckily I have never been in this situation until now. So hopefully it stays like that. And um, I, I hope that, like I say, you can never say 100%, but I hope that... Uh, that uh, most of, of the athletes are, are clean and, and see it the same way as probably we are seeing it. And I want to ask you some some tough questions of a completely different nature with, with, with the Ironman World Championships. So you obviously coach Lucy and, and Anne, who are, who are probably the, the second and third favourite for the race, maybe second and fourth favourite for the race if everyone's there and fit. And then you coach Jan Fredino, who if he was there, he, he would probably be the favourite to win it. You know, I, I don't know if that's so so black and white now as it would have been 12 months ago, but let's start in the, the women's field and then go to the men's field. If if Daniela Reef, Lucy Charles, Arn Hug, Kat Matthews, if if a Nicholas Spirig who actually wants to ride a time trial bike, if they're all there and on the start line, who do you think wins? <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that is a hard question. I think... Uh, I- no matter which answer I give, it wouldn't <laughs> makes no sense to give it here. <laughs> Be controversial, Dan. Tell us what you think. <laughs> no, um, I am as a coach of of two of these athletes. I just have to say, um, yeah, the best would win at the day. I think it's also <laughs> it, it will, will depend on the race dynamics. Um, we all, all would know that Annie will not be in the front after the swim. Um, the question is uh, what happens after. We know that Daniela, when she's at her best, uh, seems to be, um, I'm not say unbeatable, but seems to be really, yeah, the, the women to beat. And um, yeah, and I have never worked with Lucy being on Kona. So I also not, don't know what she's able to do uh, with the program, what we are doing now. So for me, I, I think uh, it's not good to give you an answer. I would. Um, I think it will be a big fight. I think it would be depend on the on the conditions during the bike, a lot of wind or not, and um, yeah. But uh, I think it would be hard to give here a hundred percent result from the pure from the past years. What we see, if everybody's hundred percent, I think then Daniela is the the main contender. I think that's what we have to see until now. What we saw until this 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 date, I think there. Perhaps Daniela is in the, the women to beat. And the men's one, obviously, you, you a lot easier for you, not having quite the, the same amount of contenders in your <laughs> in your back pocket. But Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, Magnus Ditliv, Alistair Brownlee, Lionel Sanders, Braden Curry, you know, Jan Fredino. If everyone's fit and on the start line at Kona this year or next year, who wins it? Um if if so if Jan would be at the, the the start line, I think he will win it. He would win it. Uh, we have to see how he is next year. Um, but um, win it because of, yeah, not because of pure performance, but because of performance, mental uh, strength, and um, just delivering at that day some something special. From the pure physical side, I think he always showed it when he was at the start line, and nearly always in the last. Months, I think Christian Blumenfeld is the is the main favorite here. Um, there are some other good athletes out there. You mentioned it, for example, Alistair, but there is a lot of up and down with him. So if he's he has what his day, 
for sure he will be up there. But um, like the same what I mentioned with Daniela, if we take all the results from the last years, then I would say, uh, okay, Christian with his experience, uh, with his performance in the last year seems to be uh, unbeatable. I think if Jan would be at the start line, it would be a close, a close fight with the winning Jan in the end. And um, yeah, but let's see what happens in Kona. Uh, I think uh, Gustav <laughs> is also really, really strong. Um, perhaps even the guy, the best one for the long distance. Um, we will have to see. So I, I think it will be such a close race in both uh, in men and women. And um, it will also be a little bit about keeping your own ego at yourself, so not perhaps overpacing. And I think this will also play a big role because everybody knows that the other guys are strong, wants to show. And um, yeah, it will be interesting to watch. When you have conversations with Jan, do you guys ever talk about your competitors? So like, will you and Jan have conversations about like, holy fuck, did you see what Christian just did at, at, at you know, Tokyo or the Ironman World Championships or how crazy Gustav Eden's performance was on the same day as Lucy Charles, maybe even better than Lucy's performance, which is saying something. Do you guys discuss that and, and, and talk about competition and, you know, discuss what they might be doing or what you guys might have to do to beat them? Um. Normally not, no, we don't, because um, I, we, my philosophy is, and that is also what I discussed with the athletes, is making the rider, or the rider, making the athlete as good as possible for that day. It doesn't matter who is on the start line, um, so just being 100% fit. The only, um, the only day where we talk about this uh, is perhaps two days before in front of the race, uh, when we talk about what could be the different race scenarios. So uh, then we talk perhaps about names, but until that day, never. I even, um, I, if you ask me now about times from other athletes, I even, I don't say I don't care because this would, would be respectless, but I think there's a big risk if you look too much what others are doing and how fast they are and how, how they do it. Uh, there's also a risk in this, but that's also only my philosophy. It's, I don't say this is wrong or right. <laughs> My philosophy is focusing on on, 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 on on my athletes, try to make them as strong as possible. Also in the talk with them, not bringing too much um, in their mind other athletes because they do this already on their own. So for sure, uh, they look at YouTube or they look here and there. And so it's not a discussion what I I have to bring in because it's so many, there are so many guests in. And you can imagine you're now talking every week with Lucy about Daniela. And then finally, Daniela gets sick the week, the day before. And you, you put a lot of energy in this. And it was for nothing. You know, it's, it just makes no sense. So that's why we keep it away. The same, the same the other way around. So that's why focusing on your own, focusing on what you can um, influence and your expectations, your performance, your training and everything. And then, be ready on the race day for no matter which situation can come up. And two days before the race, we talk about different scenarios so that you know, okay, what, what should I do or what can I do if this and this happens? What can I do if Daniela passed me on the bike, for example? Uh, how far should I try to follow or not? So what are the so then we talk about names, but in front of the competition, never. And I've just got one more question to wrap it up on, Dan. And and I really never talk about myself on this podcast because a pet hate of mine is when 
you know, a podcast host gets a really fascinating guest such as yourself on and, and they start talking about themselves or like you tell a story and they're doing that thing in their head where as, as Dan Larang is telling them a story, they're relating it to something they've, they've done and they're, they're just getting, just get, just getting ready to tell you, tell you about themselves. So I, I like, I hate that, but I cannot <laughs> have the world's best triathlon coach and really arguably the best best endurance sports coach in the world on the podcast and not ask a selfish question to finish up. So I've started a new series on this, on this podcast called the the training diaries. And it's where me and pro triathlete, Australian pro triathlete, Steve McKenna jump on every week. And, and, and we just discuss training and training ideas and philosophies and experiments and, and that kind of thing. It's just a deep dive on training. And, and as part of it, Steve is going to be doing Ironman Bustleton or Ironman Western Australia in December at the end of this year and and we've sort of set the challenge that he'll do that as a pro and and I'm going to do Ironman 70.3 Bustleton which is on the same weekend um, as an age grouper mm-hmm. I was a I was a, a rookie like a pro long course triathlete way back in the day but now I'm just a fat old man who who does not um, <laughs> who does not do anything like I don't train at all and I, I haven't for a long time so I have to ask you as now my coach, um, what would you, what would you, what advice would you be giving me? What's your sort of one bit of advice or, or even more as much as you'll give me to prepare the best I can in these next three or four months for my 70.3 as I progress through the the podcast, the training diaries. Just from what you're saying, uh, I would say, um, um, Focusing, so it, it depends also a little bit on the time you have because normally I would say, okay, focusing on aerobic, so in, on an aerobic endurance training, don't do, overdo it with intensities. Take care with the run that you don't get an injury because if you run it up too fast, exactly what I told you about the high professional athletes is even um, the, uh, even worse with uh, with recreational or yeah, recreational athletes or when you have been uh, away from sports for a longer time. So it takes time. To build up a, a good run so um but i would really put uh, putting the focus on doing doing some good endurance hours try to lose the, the weight what will come automatically and um i guess it's just to to um to finish it i think uh, you i don't know if you have a time goal and if you have no time goal then this is for sure the best and the safest approach and your body will uh, remind so uh, the body will come back to what you did in the past. That is quite nice. So we have some kind of muscle memory. And at some point you will feel, oh, the, the steps go faster perhaps even than I expected. And that is uh, will be a nice moment. Um, so that's um, that you just have to to go back to a regular training. So exactly what I said with the, uh, pro, uh, with the pros, it's better to have a consistent training. So regular training, doing aerobic training, in, perhaps if you feel well, include some kind of fat legs, enjoying it, but having it regularly and stay healthy until that's until the competition. Then you you will for sure be able to do it and uh, just keeping the run uh, the run mileage uh, low and try to do the work on the bike and on the, on the yeah on the swim it depends a little bit how good your swim is, but at, at least on the bike it's a good um, it's a good tool to build up the, um, the aerobic fitness without risking too much uh, the injury. Because if you now get sick or if you now get an injury in this shorter p- period of time, you have to step out from training, you lose training time, and uh, it will be hard to, to prepare good. Yeah, so 
with, 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 with a goal time. So in next week's episode, Steve is going to come with me, come to me with, hey, if you, this is the time I'm going to set you. And if I beat that oh, time, okay. <laughs> if I beat that time, then the following night after he finishes his Ironman, he has to shout me and him cocktails all night. Whereas if I go slower <laughs> than that time, I have to shout him cocktails all night. Um, and, and, and I probably won't drink them cause I don't want to spend that money and cause I'm a bit of a tight ass. But so I think he's going to set a pretty ambitious and lofty time goal. And, um, and so I guess like throughout this, the course of the, the podcast, I'm going to be referring to the advice my coach Dan Lorang gave me and, and like telling people <laughs> that you're my coach. And so if I don't get that time goal, you'll also get the blame for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I repeat once again, put a focus on the bike training. Yeah, there you can make the best, uh, the, the most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a time trial bike anymore, Dan, so I'm going to have to maybe put a call out to listeners. If someone has a size 56 time trial bike they can give me, I don't think, because I just don't think I can hit the, the time goal if I'm on the, the road bike, hey. That, <laughs> that could be difficult, yeah. So, And if you have the time trial bike, perhaps also doing a fitting, because the what's what you can save with with this kind of aerodynamic testing, you can never train as much in this short amount of time. If you save 20, 30 watts just by the right fitting, yeah, you have to train for a long time to have a gain of 20 watts or 20, 30 watts on threshold. So <laughs> it's a good investment. <laughs> and, and do you coach age group athletes at all, Dan, or with your job with Bora and, and the professionals that you coach, are you just way too busy for that? Mm. No, um, exactly. It's uh, I'm really... Um, yeah, uh, thankful to our team that I'm still allowed to coach some of the athletes, some of the triathletes, but I just coach this, the professional ones and for the rest working, yeah, not for the rest, but working 100% for the team. And um, so that's why I, I can't coach at the moment age group athletes. Um, I did this in the past and I also loved it. It's, uh, um, it's different. It's also nice and always good conversation and good um, good experiences. But from the last years on, I'm just um, yeah in the professional now and don't have the time to do it. Perhaps in the future again, we'll see. And so is there any amount of money that an age group triathlete could come to you with? Like say if someone, a, a rich businessman or, you know, maybe a young pro, like a young sort of age grouper who wants to go pro has really rich business parents and said, oh, Dan, we'll give you $5,000 a month if you if you coach coach me or coach my son or daughter or whatever it is. Would you consider it? Like, is there any ad- amount of money that could get you to coach a, an age grouper? Um, no, um, because you can't buy time. And that's what I'm running out of. <laughs> so it's, uh, it doesn't, it's, uh, I got already some offers like that um, uh, two times and it's, it's just not possible. I don't have the time and, if I have to tie, if I have skipped the time, um, for example, for my family, uh, and take it away from them, I think that's not enough money what you can pay to, yeah, to have something in um, compensation for that. So that's why no. <laughs> can you can you tell us what the offer was? Did someone make you a monster offer? <laughs> yeah, because I don't have to tell a name. No, it was um, so. It started with a thousand euros per month. And then it went up until um, um, I think it was like uh, 20 per year, but with yeah some special conditions in it. When he achieved this, then this. Um, but that was basically the offer. So I, I think 20 would have been possible if he would stay healthy and everything. And um, yeah. And it was also nice. It was not like, hey, I have the money, you have to do it. No, no, it was really nice and understand the situation and everything. And I just say 
thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Also that that you want to pay so much money, um, but um, yeah, it's just not possible. It's like I say, time is you cannot buy time. And um, at, at my actual situation, I'm happy that I have the time for coaching the the professionals uh, and and doing my my job at the team. And uh, it will also not be fair towards the other athletes um, because. Even if I get the money, but uh, I still have to put time in to analyze data of, of Jan, of Eddie, of, of Lucy, and for sure doing my job 100% of the cycling team. So it's just not a fair a fair situation. And that's why I would not do it. And um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, given that that's, that's your philosophy, Dan, I, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and talking to a, a nobody like me for two hours and giving me two hours of your valuable time. And like I've said throughout this podcast, I, I I truly believe you are you are the the best coach in triathlon, if not the the best coach in endurance sport. And I'm I'm I'm, I'm bummed that, that that you know Yarn's not going to be there this year at Kona, and and you know Lucy might not be the fittest she's ever been going into there. So you can't potentially add to your resume as much as as much as you could have. But I think there's no doubt that like the longer you're in this sport and and the longer you're in, in endurance sport the the only the better your resume and and better your your claim to being the greatest endurance coach on planet earth is going to get so yeah i'm 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 eternally thankful for you for you for coming on and, and giving me your time and and giving me so much open and honest you know um uh, like answers to my question it's it's really hard to get that from a lot of um high high level world world class coaches they're often quite um secretive with their with their with their training and and with their methodology and what they actually do but but you just gave so much information there that everyone is going to just going to take so much from that and yeah i can't thank you enough i'm a, I'm a little disappointed we didn't get to talk about our mate frederick funk who who set up this interview and teed us up and he's he's probably my favorite triathlete on on the planet my uh my girlfriend gets sick of me saying frederick funk i, I say i say his name that much so maybe if we do another interview <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to ch- chat about fred a little bit more yeah uh, so thank you very much for your words and he, yeah yeah when fred told me there was an interest in the in the podcast i asked him what do you think should i do this and he said yes for sure it's a <laughs> really great podcast and then i listened to the, some episode and yeah he was right so uh, thanks to him we had to talk and um, yeah thank you for the interest and, and the really nice words I think it's always best not to comment my own on it, so that's why I I say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think the great part that I've learned throughout this chat, Dan, is is not only are you a great great coach, but you're clearly a, a great person, and yeah. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm officially a, a huge fan. So thanks again, mate. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Have a good day, Dan. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye bye.